0: So have you ever made a promise that you could not keep? Maybe you said to a person in in a desperate attempt to get them to trust you, "Uh, I promise I will pay you back, or I promise that I will do this, that, or the other for you. If you just do this one thing for me. Maybe you've made those types of promises to God. I know I have. God, if you just let me get an A on this exam, I'll go to church on Sunday. Or if you allow me to live, or to be healed, or to get me out of this kind of precarious situation, I'll live the rest of my life for you. And just as soon as the exam's over, or the life-threatening situation has passed, you break your promise. Well, in today's text, we're dealing with a promise. And it's the ultimate promise, one that's unbreakable, because it's a promise that is made by God himself. So following Genesis chapter 1, which tells of the creation of all things by God, and then uh, Genesis 3, which tells of the, the, the destruction of the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, the next great pivotal chapter, really, of Genesis is the one that we find ourselves in this morning, Genesis chapter 15. And, and this great pivotal chapter deals with this promise from God. And it's not just a promise to Abram, although it is, but it is a promise that carries throughout the Old Testament, carries throughout the New Testament, and is still true and coming to fruition today in our life. So we wanna, I want to look at this passage in three ways today, and these are in your worship guide if you're taking notes. One is the confirmed promise Two is credited righteousness. And three is the committed covenant. So confirmed promise, credited righteousness, and the committed covenant. So first, the the confirmed promise. Look at verse 1. So our author writes, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He said, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So that, that phrase there, after that first phrase there in verse 1, after these things, uh, thematically joins chapter 15 back to chapter 14. So these aren't separate, you know, how the Bible was written. wasn't written in chapters. It was actually a good, nice flow to it. So it's connecting us back to what has just happened in chapter 14. And it does this by this idea of, of a reward. So chapter 14, as we remember from last week, closes with Abram refusing to take the reward from the king of Sodom. And then in chapter 15, it opens with God responding to Abram's act of faith by reassuring him that he is his God and that the reward from him shall be great. So God is the one who is going to bring him this great reward. So God tells Abram three things in this first verse here. He says, uh, don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, and then your reward shall be very great. So the first thing that God tells Abram in his vision is, don't be afraid or do not fear Abram. Because Abram has, at this point in his life, Abram has every reason to be afraid. He has every reason to be fearful. So he's just, uh, he's just successfully battled a war With four kings. He's won the victory with 318 men. So uh, naturally, Abram would be a bit fearful at this point in the game because he has now set himself up as a threat to other kingdoms. And these other kingdoms could potentially either retaliate or just attack him and wipe him out completely. So Abram is thinking about that and he's fearful. And then in addition to, to God telling Abram not to be afraid, God also informs him that he is his shield, His protection against his enemies. Now we don't really use shields anymore. We don't carry those around for protection. We don't really have any need for them at, at this point. Um, but this, this in, in the Christian's mind, this should make us think forward. Uh, to Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul describes this suit of armor that the Christian is to be wearing every single day. And one of those pieces of armor that Paul talks about is the shield. So this shield actually sheds light on what God is saying to Abram here. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. With which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So, what this means for us is that a believer, as a believer in Christ, you too have a shield. That God is actually your shield as, as he was as, as Abram's shield. He, God was not just talking about a physical protection upon Abram, as we'll see. He was talking about a spiritual protection as well. That God is the one who. Yes, protects you protects you from your enemies, but he also protects you from Satan and temptation. So God reassures Abram and us that our faith is founded upon him. It's not found upon ourselves. Because God is the one who keeps us safe in every circumstance. And so we need not be afraid of anything. May we don't we don't need to be afraid of armies or what the outcome of elections might be that are upcoming. We don't need to be afraid of co-workers, or our classmates, or the dark. Because God is always with us, just like he was with Abram. And this is something Abram needed to hear again and again and again. He, God didn't have to, just needed to tell him one time. Abram needed to hear this reminder again and again, Because he needed to know that it is against his own heart that he's having these struggles. Even now, as he begins to have questions about God's promises that he's made to him. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of of thoughts swarming through Abram's head uh, at this particular moment in his life. Maybe he's asking questions like, why is all of this happening to me? Why am I having to go and rescue my nephew in this way? Why am I having to battle these kings in the way that I'm having to battle them? I thought life would be a little bit easier since God is with me. Will these four kings retaliate? Will I be crushed? Why haven't the promises of God come to fruition yet? Yet God reassures Abram here that his reward will be great which tells us that the reward that the king of Sodom uh, wanted to give him was probably massive. But it wasn't the reward that God has in store for Abram. So all three of these opening statements here, just in verse 1, are meant to reassure Abram of God's presence, God's promise, and God's protection, that God is with him, and Abram needed to understand that. Because it's within that protection, it's within that assurance that God gives him that Abram is able to ask these questions that he has in chapter 15. So in verses 2 through 5, we, we have this first dialogue between, between God and Abram that's initiated by Abram's uh, first question that starts in verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless... And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So in response to God's reassurance of presence and promise and protection, Abram asked a question concerning the promise of offspring. Simply because he doesn't have any children yet. So of course, we would all be wondering at this point, if God promised us children and he hadn't given them to us yet, we're going, what is happening? Why haven't you done this? The promise has yet to be fulfilled in Abram's life, and he's wondering, how will God accomplish what he has promised? So a few years have passed since God made, originally made the promise to Abram, so, and a lot has happened within those few years, so Back in chapter 12, verse 4, when Abram first left his homeland, Abram was, was around 75 years old, okay? So you're already thinking, like, there ain't no way he's having a child at 75. But then we, when you, if you skip over to chapter 16, when no child is on the horizon uh, even in chapter 16, he is 86 years old. So we can guess that, that here in chapter 15, about 5 to 10 years have passed, and so Abram is between, now between 80 to 85 years old. So the point being is that Abram and Sarai are not getting any younger. And they're thinking, it really doesn't look like God is going to keep his promise in the way that I originally thought, which was a, an actual son of mine. So Abram suggests in response, Abram always has a plan B, that his heir will be one of his servants. Eliezer of Damascus, perfect candidate for this particular situation. And this is a natural response since Abram didn't have a child of his own. In this culture, a servant uh, could be and, and was oftentimes adopted as a son and then became the heir of that family. He would carry on the family line as an adopted son. So why would that be a problem in this particular situation? It seems like a good idea. It is, it's, it's reasonable. It's, it's culturally acceptable. Nobody would, would question it. Uh, God can and has uh, worked through situations uh, much worse than this. Why does it have to be Abram and Sarai's actual child? Well, because God said so. That was his plan. That was his that he would give him an offspring, that he would give him a son. So we, we have to understand that God doesn't necessarily conform to what's practical or within our time frame. So you see here, here in Abram's questioning in verse 3, he says, Behold, you have given me no offspring. Abram is, is stating the obvious to God as if God doesn't know this. Abram brings us, you have given me no child of my own. So in this comment, you can hear Abram hinting at his timeline. I thought it was going to happen during this particular timeline, when I was a a little bit younger than I am now, and I thought you would give me a child. That makes a lot more sense to me. And So just like we saw with Eve in Genesis 4, if you can remember remember that far back from last year, who thought that that after uh, the murder happened between her sons, that God was going to immediately bring the Messiah. That's what Adam and Eve believe. This is, this, is, this is my time frame. You are going to save us now. And God doesn't do that. Well, Abram has a similar mindset now. Well, you also hear Abram's thought process as he suggests the plan of using his servant. Wouldn't this plan be better? It makes more sense. It's easy. It's right here before us. We can go ahead and get this thing rolling. I mean, Abram and Sarai are only getting older, and with the prospects of conceiving a child, only becoming slimmer and slimmer. To remember this in your own life, and I've said this before, that it's always the, it's always the Lord's work in the Lord's way. And sometimes, or I would say most of the time, that will not compute with your logic nor will it ever fit in your timeline. And it's at that, those moments when it's, when you're confused, when you're saying, logically, this does not make sense. Logically, this doesn't seem like it's going to work. Or this does not fit into my perfect plan for my life. Those are the moments when it is okay to ask questions of God. If something seems confusing in your, in your life. It is okay to ask questions of God. God actually welcomes your questions. In fact, I think it would be wrong for you not to ask questions of God. And maybe one way you we could, we could ask questions, because sometimes we might come shaking our fist or we ask in an arrogant way thinking that we know best. One way that we can do that in a humble way is to say, Father in heaven, I'm your child and I have this great problem before me. I have this this thing that I don't understand and I want to understand it better. Why has this particular thing happened to me? What's going on? What are you doing in my life right now? See, God is not opposed to your questions and nor should you be opposed to asking them of him. Because Abram does just that here in the text. He lays the matter before God Lord, why is this happening? What are you doing? I don't have any children, and I don't see how your promises can be fulfilled without them. And God answers. He answers by confirming his promises to him in verses 4 through 5. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said... Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. God uses this opportunity of his questioning to confirm for Abram the most important promise, which is offspring. And this is God's grace towards Abram here. Even though he believes the promise... He still gets muddled, as we all do at times in the Christian life. We still get muddled. We still forget what God has, has promised to us in Christ, that he will finish the good work that he started, started in us. And, and, and Abram needs to hear the promise again. So God, who is gracious, doesn't say to Abram, Hey, I'm, I'm not going to add another word. Look, I've already told you what I'm going to tell you, and you just need to believe it because I said it, and that's fine. But God, in his grace and in his love towards Abram, says it all over again. And even adds a little bit more detail to it. You are going to be the father of a great nation, Abram. And it will be through your very own child that this will happen. So, as he does this, like he did back in chapter 13, verse 16, when he says his offspring will be as many as the dust of the earth. Here in 15.5, he takes, him, uh, he takes him outside and he uses the stars to say the same thing. He actually had Abram look to the sky and start counting. So Abram's problem wasn't the questions that he was asking. It was where his eyes were fixed. That was his problem. Abram was, was looking down at the situation while God had him looking up at what he was going to do. Abram needed his mind stretched again by the greatness of his God. As do you and I. How often in your life do you uh, look down at your situation and your surroundings and not look up at God's greatness? I admit it is easier to look around at how busy I am, that I am each week or, or maybe the problems that are going on in the world or, or these things that, that come in the mail that worry me or emails that I get or, or different things like that, that that seem to overwhelm you at times. It is easier to focus your attention upon those things that you think that you can control. But it's God, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, who sets your gaze elsewhere says to Abram here, look at the stars. Look at the stars and count them. Or look to the hills to see where your help comes from. And other portions of scripture. Look to the beauty of the flowers to fight your anxiety and worry. To see how this, this God provides for you. Look to the greatness of God. Now, it's important to understand here that God is both speaking about a people who will outnumber the stars, that will happen, but he's also speaking about a person, an individual. We read this last week, I think, Paul explains this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, um, that Miranda read for us earlier, where he says, Now the promises were made to Abram and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to One. And to your offspring, who is Christ. So that's in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 in the New Testament. And then skipping down to Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, Paul closes that particular portion of his letter by saying, And if you are Christ, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So God's answer to Abram's question is not primarily meant to just bring him comfort. Oh, Abram, you will have, I promise, you will have a child and you will have land. It's not not just that. But it's pointing Abram to where salvation lies through these promises. This is what is happening in these verses. God is not just declaring the promise of a people or a land, but an individual who will save his people from their sins. That's what God is promising Abram. And that's something we see happening in our second point, as Abram's belief in the Lord's promises credits to him righteousness. Look at verse 6. After he's been told all of these things, it says, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him or credited it to him as righteousness. So like I said in my introductory comments, Genesis 15 is, by many standards, the greatest chapter in the Bible. So if chapter 15 is seen in this way, then verse 6 in this chapter is perhaps one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. Because it's a verse that tells me and tells you where and how we can stand before God. One pastor called this verse salvation's hinge because salvation rests on something that is not on our own merit or our own works, but on the merits and works of another, namely Jesus Christ. And it's here in verse 6 where we, we begin to see this take shape and how it carries us uh, throughout the scriptures as well. But in light of that, really what you are seeing in verse 6 here is the heart of God towards humanity. That God is never forsaking his people, but he's always moving towards them in love. And you also have to understand that God's motivation in moving towards you doesn't start with you. It starts with his love for his son, even back here in Genesis. And out of the overflow of this love for his son, this is when God moves towards you. So like I said earlier, or already in our study of Genesis, there is, there is nothing in you that commends you to God. There is nothing in who you are or what you've done or haven't done that motivates God to move towards you. Nothing. Now that should not be discouraging to you. That should actually be comforting. So you can stop whatever it is that you are doing or not doing to try to impress God or try to get God to love you because it's not working. And you already know that. You already know it's not working. So if you look back at Genesis 3, we can see what type of situation that our first parents, Adam and Eve, uh, put us in. Because Adam's sin, we have inherited this nature, this sin nature from him or if you want to put it in theological terms that Adam's sin has been imputed to us that we are all covered in this sin not one of us is 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 exempt from this in this room to paradise because of this paradise is off limits The relationship with God is is severed. It's irreparable even. There's nothing that we can do to fix it. But God, in his grace and mercy, doesn't leave us without hope. In Genesis 3.15, he says to Adam and Eve, I will bring one that will crush the head of the serpent. And through that work, the relationship between you and I will be restored. It will be restored. Consider that the Bible tells us over and over again of the holiness of God. God is holy, and because God is holy, God cannot be in the presence of sin, which is why Adam and Eve had to be sent out of the garden. God can no longer be in their presence because they were now sinful. And he has to deal with sin justly. That's what you see there in the garden. And that's what you continue to see throughout the Bible and throughout uh, throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And then consider that the Bible teaches us that you are a sinner. That you sin against this holy God. And that there is nothing that you can do to change that on your own. You can't clean yourself up. Now consider just using your imagination, where you stand before God in and of yourself, in and of that particular reality, that you are a sinner who stands before a holy God who has to deal with your sin justly, and you're standing there alone before him. Where does that leave you? Well, let's ask two questions of this verse to get to the hope that lies within it for humanity. The first question we must ask comes from the phrase, and he, Abram, believed the Lord. So what is it that Abram believed here? Doesn't seem to be a lot going on, but we could say, is that, is it, is he, did he believe that uh, God is his shield? Is it, is it that God's promise to give him, a, give him a son of his own? Is that what he believed? Is it the confirmation that he sees before him of numbering the stars? Is that what Abram believed? And we can say yes to all of those those questions. He believed all of that. And all of those things lie within the answer. So the Apostle Paul helps us here, as we read earlier in the service, in Galatians 3. So we're going to jump. If you want to turn to Galatians 3 so that you can see this, just in case you think I'm making this up, um, you can move to Galatians 3. Um, and it's really helpful here for us to look at this, because in Galatians 3, Paul explains what's going on here in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Paul is, is expositing this text for us. He is preaching a sermon, if you will, through a letter. Because I'm sure for some of you, it's hard to look at a verse like Genesis fifteen six and say, oh, he's referring to Jesus here. That makes total sense. Or, or how could he believe in Jesus if Jesus hasn't come yet? That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And that's actually okay to have those questions. Those are normal questions to be asking because it points us to why we have to look at the Bible as a whole book. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't divorce or unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. The, 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 Old the Old Testament helps us understand the New Testament, and the New Testament helps us understand the Old Testament. So we need the whole thing. So never buy a book, never buy a, a, a Bible that is missing the Old Testament, okay? That is not the full Bible. Okay? Because in Galatians 3, Paul is telling us using the Old Testament, using Genesis 15-6, that Abram did look forward to the coming of Christ and did trust Christ as his personal Savior from sin. Three main points that he makes here. It's like a good preacher. First, Paul says Abram was justified by faith in God's Word regarding spiritual things, and, and that means he had faith in the gospel. If you have Galatians 3 there before you, look at verses 8 through 9. Paul says, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, so future, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed, Genesis 12, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So in verse 8, Paul quotes from Genesis 12, 3, the original promise to Abram that we looked at a few weeks ago, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So what he's saying here is that this blessing that Abram believed is not a mere real estate transaction. It's not just God just promising this great abundant piece of land to Abram or this great amount of people that will fill the land, or the promise to give him uh, health and wealth as long as he has faith in him, as long as he stays close to him. No, what God is promising to Abram is way more significant than that. Because what God is promising to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, is salvation. And not only is he promising salvation to Abram, he's promising salvation to every nation, to the Gentiles, which was unheard of back in Genesis. And that's talking about you and me. That means the promise that God has given to Abram is a promise to you. And Paul calls this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, the gospel. So understand that Abram's faith was not in land or people. As one pastor said, Abram was operating on the highest level of faith from the start. The only, only, faith that God, only faith that God gives you would move a man like Abram to leave everything and follow God into the unknown. Only faith from God would move you to do that. So Abram was already working on this high level of faith that was given to him by God. So, because You see through that 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 his motivation to leave was never land or the promise of people. But while he could not articulate it as well as you and I could, when we ask you what is the gospel in your member interview and you're able to point directly to Jesus, Abram was not able to do that exactly the way in which we could do. Abram was still awaiting the Messiah. Abram still believed that God was sending the Messiah through his line. That's what Abram believed. This is why in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, the author is able to say about Abraham, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So the second thing that Paul brings up about our text is that the spiritual promises received and believed by Abram concerned redemption. He believed that the promise was not a generic promise to redeem, uh, to redeem him from the sins of the world, but that, he, that this was a promise to him personally to redeem him from the sins of his own hearts. Abram, you see, understood what the fall had done. He understood that his heart was sinful. He understood that the relationship between the Almighty was broken. And that there was nothing that he could do to repair it. Paul calls this the curse. He knew that he was cursed. And then in verse 14, he, he, he contrasts that with the blessing of Abraham. And this blessing comes to us in Christ Jesus, Paul says. And the way that was accomplished was by Christ being hanged on a tree to redeem us from the curse that we had inherited from Adam. And Paul says that Jesus actually became the curse for us. So finally, Paul says that in addition to this spiritual ples- blessing, Abram also looked forward to the coming of Jesus especially. This is what chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 16 of Galatians uh, means that I mentioned earlier When Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So that's not the only time uh, that God uses that singular form of the word offspring. He actually uses it three times here in the life. Of Abram. Uh, in chapter 12, verse 7, we hear it. Then in chapter 13, verse 15, we hear it again. And then in chapter 24, verse 7, he says the exact same thing again to Abram. So, what Paul is telling us here in Galatians is that this did not go unnoticed to Abram. Abram wasn't like, oh, that's what you meant? Abram caught it, Abram understood the emphasis that God was seeking to make to him concerning his offspring. And Abram believed that this was not just a promise for a massive number of children. But of a particular offspring. A particular child who would bring salvation to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And that offspring is Jesus Christ. And that's what Abram believed. So the second question tells us the results of this belief that we ask. What was counted to Abram as righteousness? What does this even mean? So for the answer to this, we go to another of Paul's letters in, in Romans chapter 3, because Paul, Paul saw Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, as foundational to Christianity, which is, which is why he comes back to it over and over again on multiple occasions. So I won't quote from, from uh, Romans chapter 3 but the idea of what Paul is trying to get across is here from Romans 3 because a major reason it, this is something Paul comes back to is because it teaches us this great doctrine of justification that we learned about earlier in the service it's one of the central themes of the Bible John Calvin called it the main hinge on which salvation turns Martin Luther the reformer said of it justification begets Nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. It is the chief article of Christian doctrine so that when the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. You throw out justification, you throw out everything. You throw out Christianity. Justification is so important to the Christian faith because it answers the fundamental question that all of us have. How can a sinful human being be righteous or be right before a holy God? How's that possible? From our statement of faith that we read earlier, it says that we believe that justification is the blessing in which those who believe in Christ are declared righteous. And that within justification, this includes the pardon of sin, the forgiveness of sin, and the promise of eternal life, On the basis of Christ's righteousness, not ours. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 9, Paul highlights this. He says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Abram's works did not save him. Abram's good deeds did not redeem him. And Abram's obedience didn't commend him to God. It was faith alone in God's promise that did this. And in our final point, we'll see God kind of push his promise to Abram even further through this committed covenant that he makes with him. Look at verses 7 through 8 to the start. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from your of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So another little dialogue happening between God uh, and Abram here. But before jumping into the details of the covenant that God made, the first thing you need to understand is, is what God is doing through this covenant. That he is, because, I mean, he's already promised God's already said, I promise that this will happen. And we know, because it's God, that He will not break His promise. That He, that he will fulfill it. But He takes you to step forward in this covenant. So what He does in this covenant is that He is, he is binding Himself. That's one way we, we can use the, the word covenant here. He is binding Himself even tighter to His people. God, we could say, through this covenant, is making it impossible... If it were possible, he's making it impossible for him to ever break away from his people. He's making it impossible for him ever to be unfaithful to them. And he does this through covenant. So what is a covenant? So the systematic theology definition, for those of you who love this stuff from Wayne Grudem, is this. A covenant is an unchangeable covenant divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. So an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. So if that made you fall asleep, fundamentally, a covenant is God acting as the first party in this covenant that he is making, and he establishes and determines in the covenant the relationship in which the second party will stand to him. That's what a covenant is. And the covenant he makes with Abram demonstrates that to us. And the way we see this is in the details of how this covenant is established between God and man. And it begins, again, with another question that Abram is asking here, his second question that he asks in the text here in verse 8. He says, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How am I to know that I shall possess this land that you are talking about? Now, if you notice, God doesn't give him the answer right away. He doesn't say, oh, Abraham, yeah, you missed that detail back here. And here's how, how it does it. God doesn't do that until a little bit later on in the test, text. But also notice that God doesn't get frustrated with Abraham's question, question asking either. He doesn't accuse Abram of unbelief, or he doesn't say, as, he's, as Jesus says to his disciples later, Oh, you of, of little faith. Now, God takes Abram's question quite seriously. And the way that we see it happen is the way in which he, he, he makes this covenant with Abram. Look there with me at verses 9 through 11 again. God says to Abram, uh, Bring me a heifer three years old. A female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So, literally, what we have before us here is a bloody mess. I mean, if you were to walk up upon something like that uh, in the woods, it would terrify you. And then you have this old 80- to 85-year-old man standing in the midst of it. This is pools of blood. This is what we have before us. Yet this was a common covenant practice. I know as kids it's hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around that because I know as kids we, we would say the way in which we would kind of make a covenant with somebody or, or a promise is you would say something like I swear on my mother's grave or I cross my heart and hope to die. You know, and typically that was followed with us crossing our fingers and that could, that could null the covenant there that was made. Or as an adult, you sign a contract, you know, and there's a penalty to that. If you break the contract, you could, you know, you could lose money or you could lose your house or you could lose something else of great Value. That's, that's the extent, really, of the covenants that we make. We don't really understand what's really going on here. But in Abram's day, this if you wanted to get serious about something with someone, this is what you would do. You would bring animals, you would cut them in half, and both parties would walk in between them to symbolically say, if I break this covenant with you, let what has been done to these animals... Be done to me. Death. So it was, it was two-sided, and it was serious. Yet the covenant between Abram and, and God is a bit different. There's one detail that is not included in this covenant between Abram and God. Look at verses 12 through 18. So as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So the difference is that God's covenant with Abram was one-sided. Did you catch that in the text? Right at the very beginning, Abram is asleep the whole time. He is only seeing what God is doing in this covenant in his dream. So, in verses 13 through 16, God lays out before Abram, we can't go into detail all that, there's a lot there, but he's laying out before Abram exactly what will happen for the next 400 plus years in the life of God's people. That, that God kind of lets Abram kind of peek behind the, cur, uh, the curtain a little bit, even to see what will happen when he is dead and gone. God says, I will give this land to your people. Even though all of these terrible things will happen to them, the promise will remain. And the way in which this is confirmed is through this one-sided covenant with Abram. To which, what God is communicating here, and, and you see that symbolically, the, the fire pot and, and the flaming torch that symbolically represents uh, who God is, and we don't have time to, to jump into that, but it's, it is very interesting. But what God is communicating through the, through the cutting of this covenant with Abram is that he alone, God alone, is binding himself symbolically under the punishment of death to fulfill this promise. To Abram and to his people. So what God is saying is. If I don't keep my promise. Let it be death to me. And he doesn't hold Abram to that. He doesn't say if you don't keep your end of the bargain. Whatever you'll die as well. God alone was the one who was assuring his promise to his people. This is why it says in Hebrews chapter 6, 13 through 15, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. And so Abram's response to all of this is simply faith. A faith that pleased God. So you might be asking here as we close, what is the faith that pleases God? Uh, what then is the faith that justifies me? What does that mean? Well, to look at another place in the Old Testament, Habakkuk, the prophet reveals through his prayer what justifying faith, faith like Abram's, looks like. Because it's a faith that, like I said earlier, it defies all contradictions of our outward circumstances. It it flies against our own logic and our own timeline. It's a faith that doesn't compute with us most of the time, but it's a faith that looks entirely to God alone and to his promises alone. And they are promises that we can trust simply because of the covenant he made with Abram here. So listen to the words of the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17. Through 19, to understand that by faith alone in Christ alone, like Abram, we find an end to all of the perplexities of life. And I'll close with these verses Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no flute, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. So what Habakkuk is saying there is, The worst things possibly happen. Everything that could happen that's wrong happens to me. Even if all of this happens, Habakkuk says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven... You are the, the God who keeps his promises. You are the God who, who promises to justify us in Christ, and that is exactly what you have done. You are the God who, as Habakkuk says, uh, uh, sets our feet on high places. And that you continue to do that in your people today. Your promise to Abram still is coming to fruition. You are still making a people for yourself And God, we pray that you would continue to do so until all of the nations worship you. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.